Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. The song Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds will always take me back to teen summers and feeling a deep longing to fit in to matter that much to someone, to the breakfast club. When I swim in the ocean or even in a lake, I have to force myself not to hear the Jaws theme, but it's still there on a subconscious level. Composer Jeff Rona says music is a subversive element that stirs the heart. It's the only sensory input aside from smell that circumvents the conscious mind and goes right to memory and our most primal core cognition. Today, we talk about storytelling through music, deconstructing music for video games, and the difference between pop symmetry and film scores. Is that a vase behind you with a sunflower on it? Or? That is yeah. actually a percussion instrument called That's a Urdu. Is it one of those? No, it doesn't have the net of little shells around it where you go. Ch -ch -ch -ch. No, it's no, that's a kabasa. Okay. So this is a clay, like a vase. That's a little hole. And then there's oh. a hole on the top. And you, you, you tap it and you tap on the holes and it plays a low note and then you play on the sides and it makes a high note. Oh, that's neat. Wait. Yeah, there's uh, quite a few instruments off camera from all over the place. And I have my Balinese gamelan orchestra upstairs. Yeah, you've got a bunch of really cool instruments from all kinds of different cultures around the world. Yeah, it used to be a bigger part of my work. A lot For less so now. Why is that? Um, kind of just my own musical progression. And uh, mm. I think in general, uh, there's less interest now in world music than there used to be in, in uh, film and TV. It's just, uh, used to, it was kind of trendy for a period of time, starting in the, like in the mid to late 90s. You I was going to say the 90s, right? Little Middle Eastern instruments that made no... Yeah. That had nothing to do with the plot or the, mm -hmm. you know, it was just like, hey, it's a cool, weird sound. And um, it just got, got a little out of hand. And it ran, it, it had its run of about 10 or 12 years. And then it kind of thankfully waned. You know, I'm, I, I'm not going to call it cultural appropriation uh, yet, but um, there's a, there's an aspect of, of, you know, taking a little bit from this culture and a little bit from mm -hmm. that culture and mixing it up inside your your uh, music and then, you know, calling it calling it cool. Well, I mean, so as a as a former radio DJ in the nineties, that I mm -hmm. had a world music show and world music was super like mm. it, I remember it being very popular and very people were interested in it. And then now when you say that soundtrack wise, I'm thinking of things like the uh, the gladiator soundtrack, you know, where you had the that female vocalist style that was vaguely I don't even know was it Middle Eastern, and it, then you heard it everywhere. It was like the go to. Yeah. You had to have the plaintive woman voice floating over the like. Yeah, well, gladiator, which I I worked on, and I I actually wrote a little bit of music for that. Um, 
the um, you know movies usually start with something called a temp score, where mm -hmm. the director and the editor just grab from different records, sometimes soundtracks, sometimes other albums, and drop them in and see if it kind of creates a mood for the editor to keep cutting. And they might have a few screenings for producers or for small audiences with music that won't end up in the film, but is there as a sort of a placeholder mm -hmm. to create a, a feel. In the case of Gladiator, they had extensively used the 80s um, sort of goth rock band Dead Can Dance. Oh, okay. I remember them. Yeah. And so they reached out to Lisa Gerard, the singer, the, who's and she's the active. voice in Gladiator. But even before Gladiator, she scored and sang on two Michael Mann movies. She did yes. uh, Ali and she did The Insider. Um, oh, okay. Not with as much of her voice, but she has this unique, I mean, she's Australian, um, but she grew up like in a Turkish ghetto. and Yeah, her voice is amazing. Really, and she has know, that kind of world spirit, like yeah, world traveler. Yeah, and she and I have worked on a couple of movies together and Dead Can Dance has continued on. And, yeah. Um, but that's a great example of, of sort of a hunger for the exotic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we were into that in the 90s. But how much as a com as a composer do you feel like pressured or like to follow trends like that? Like do you have producers coming going, I really want that kind of sound or? Oh yeah, you know, all the, yes. Um, you know, not unlike um, the pop music world where if Lady Gaga has a hit, you know, and you know, she brand, you know, her first album and her first songs. And then suddenly you start to hear fragments of what she did show up in a bunch of other artists mm -hmm. and that's kind of just normal chasing chasing a hit and so if a movie i mean just to be blunt about it, if a movie makes a lot of money um you know somebody go you know they'll sort of deconstruct what was the secret sauce mm -hmm. you know leaving out the fact that it was just well made and you can't <laughs> yeah. take well-madeness and put it into your project but curses uh, um, That's but, where we've all well, gone wrong. Certainly actors and directors and writers, if they do a hit, then they, they often will get work because of that, almost to the point where they start to get typecast. Uh -huh. And with musicians, it's a, it's a little bit the same. Um, some, some composers get to be very eclectic in their careers, but if you have a big hit and it's a comedy, your phone really, it, it, you know, the calls are all about, hey, they want you to do this comedy. Hey, they love what you did in that mm. comedy. Do you want to do their comedy? And it isn't necessarily that they're intentionally being derivative, but. Well, how much do you have, like, when a director or producer comes to you with, with a piece and they're like, if the temp music's in there, is it like, make it sound as much like this as you can? Or, or, or do you have cases where they're like, Hey, Jeff, what do you feel here? Riff on stuff and give me ideas. Generally speaking, it's all based on the confidence of the director hmm. in film or of the, of the executive producers, the showrunners in television. If they are unsure of their work, if they, if they lack confidence, they will often say, stick to the temp, rip it off, steal it, you know, 
one director said, take that, take the temp and play it sideways, you know, just stay, stay one step, you know, away from a lawsuit. Oh and, um, and uh, if, if a director has confidence in themselves and in the performances and in the structure and in the editing, then they're less inclined to worry that if the composer veers from this temp, this you know temp score, that it that they can still achieve something great. You know the problem, of course, is that you know in the cutting room, a scene will get worked on hundreds of times, and a director will have seen it hundreds and hundreds of times, um, so much so that um, when you change out the music it just sounds wrong because yeah. in their brains they've married that piece of music that was mm -hmm. not written by the composer with that scene and then they it, it they're just thrown off and i've i've encountered that on, on a few occasions where it's like well why didn't you do the high note where she picks up the the gun and it's well that's what's in the temp when things are going well uh an experienced, confident director, editor, producers can set those things aside and, and hope that the music will fulfill their vision, but with a bit of surprise. How, how much do you encounter, which I know I went through, directors falling in love with a specific track and going, let me get to this band and license this track. And you're like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I stay out of their way with that, you know. Um, most films and TV shows have some amount of music that isn't written by a composer right, before, right, right. but that is just, you know, songs from bands or albums that they really like. And, you know, in theory, if, if it feels right, if it tells the story um, stylistically, if it's set in the right period or why ever, for whatever reason that the choice is, um, uh, to use a song instead of score, you know, in theory, it should be for a reason. And um, there's a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's just nice to have, take a break. And sometimes it's nice to get nostalgic. And sometimes it's nice to get, um, just do something contemporary, whatever, whatever it is. There are pretty significant budgetary constraints with pop yes. music in, in film. You know, it can cost tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to place a song by a well-known artist into a high profile project, which would be yeah. any TV show and any non-indie movie. The people who pick music, who pick songs for movies, they're called music supervisors. Yes. And I stay super far away from all that. Yes. Although sometimes when we're, when we're spotting, when we're in a meeting to decide where the music is gonna go, in a, in, a, in, a, in a film or a show, uh, sometimes we'll come to a scene and the music supervisor will say, I have a great idea for a song there. And I'll say, well, I had thought about scoring that, but why don't you take a shot at it first and if it works great. If not, I'll have a standby for you and, and that'll be that. And that actually works really well. Oh, that's awesome. Let me, let me rewind and say, say something kind of in the preface. Okay. Um, which is, why have music at all? Yes. And why is it that there have been virtually no movies or TV shows without some kind of music? 
there's really a handful and it's really conspicuous, really conspicuous when it happens. But Alfred Hitchcock made a movie without music. Um, Woody Allen made a movie without music. Um, uh, uh, Cloverfield, uh, the Matt Reeves movie only had an end title song. Uh, Roma didn't have any music. Oh, that's right. Um, except music just in the streets. Incidental, and, and, and incidental there's a music, lot of yeah. it. And, um, but why have music at all? And, and, and if you are gonna have music, what's the point? And you know, what's the goal? And here's what's interesting. Uh, when you think about it, every craft that goes into making a movie, well, everybody's job is to trick the audience into thinking that what they're seeing is real, that mm -hmm. those are real characters in real danger, you know, actually in love, actually being chased, actually saving the world, whatever it is, and that everything about it is plausible, even if it takes place in outer space or in the future or in the past. Everything is about building uh, believability with one exception. And the only exception really is music. Music is absolutely not a part of the real world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is no fast music when somebody's chasing you. Um, you know, should you experience Except for what I hear in my head. Except for what you hear in your head, which is probably, ah! <laughs> um, and so it's, it's interesting how accepting an audience is that there's music, so much so that when you don't have music, it's weird. It's jarring. And, and, and so it is, it is oddly, it's oddly at odds with, um, with it. And yet it's very hard to tell a story yeah. without music. Well, and I was gonna say in answer to your question, music helps tell story, right? Music only is there to tell a story, but, but it, it adds a few things. You know, if you see a play, it can be very emotional. But if you take that play and add music, it's an opera. And operas are way over All the of the emotion. You know, operas are all about dialing it up to 11. Yes. Kind of from beginning to end. And that's because music moves us in a way that words don't. You know, listening to dialogue, an audience has to think. You know, mm -hmm. when, when you're sitting, even if you're trying to veg out in front of a silly, you know, you know, sitcom, you're still thinking, you're, you're listening to the words, you're putting two and two together. There's an intellectual aspect mm -hmm. of absorbing media. You know, why did she say that? Oh, it has to do with the thing that he said three scenes ago. And so, you know, there's a lot going on. Music and especially film music doesn't exist in the intellectual realm. It, it's a subversive element hmm. that simply stirs the heart. And, and it does it with, um, well, with a familiarity where we all grow up with music. You know, music is one of the first things we hear. Our parents sing to us. We grow up listening to music. We start enjoying things and, you know, uh, buying music or, you know, collecting music. So music is a part of all cultures. It's, it's yes. a, about as universal, if not the only universal uh, art form globally. I think there are tribes and cultures without written words, without specific dancing, without drama, but I don't think there's a culture on the planet without music. So 
clearly music has has a a, a primal uh, effect yes. on us, and it does it below the the radar of intellectual reason. And so when you combine that that intuitive, subliminal thing that music does to stir emotions, whether it's fear or joy or fun or tense or mystery, and you add that to the intellectual part of storytelling, which is words, there's something about the, the two together that just takes a scene and moves it somewhere else. And you also have the issue that with very few exceptions, movies and TV show, shows don't play, take place in real time, mm -hmm. you know? And um, because of that, um, it's part, part of a filmmaker's challenge to manipulate the, the sense of time as it passes. Sort of, what is it, psychological versus ontological yes. time, if I may? You may. <laughs> throw a couple of, uh, you know, uh, 12, 12 cent words. Um, but the perception of time versus the clock ticking mm -hmm. is phenomenal at that in a way that even editing can't quite pull off. Well, so, it's it's really cool what you're saying about like the sense, the way it hits our sensory. Um, it's below like the cognitive level. And it's um, like only the only other thing that I think that can do that is smell. How a smell can take you back to a memory and like a song can take you back to a memory or a feeling, and you might not even realize what just happened or why you're feeling that way, but it's like, oh, it was that song or was, or was that sound or that, mm -hmm. that smell. Those are the only things that like really get into that yeah. base humanity. Yes, that's a good point. It's all about sensory uh, yeah. stimulation. And so... since we don't have smell-o-vision, we need composers. Well- Although I did see that one John Waters movie. Oh no, really? Sniff guards. Awesome. Well, there's the famous example of of Hitchcock and the shower killing scene in Psycho, right? Where they said it was too scary and he took out the music and they were like, it's fine. And so it's like the, the, the that I think is so interesting that music has that much power over yeah, our emotions. I worked on a horror film. And I can't remember which film, but the film got an NC-17 rating only because of the music. Wow. They said it was simply too intense for most, for wow. any audience, non-adult audience. And so they actually had him rewrite some of it in order to tone it take, down. To take it down. Wow. But that's pretty rare. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, it, so from where I'm sitting as a creative on the words side, Yes. It seems like it must, this is sound, like sounding very naive, but it must be really cool to feel like you have that kind of power and you're at your fingertips. Like to understand music and instrumentation and composition in that way that you can manipulate people's emotions. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, who doesn't get a good feeling knowing that they're good at manipulating other people? <laughs> <laughs> Please be a kind and benevolent leader when you take over. <laughs> Well, we're not leaders, you know. The story's already been told. Well, you know, our job is to tell the story on another, on sort of a parallel plane, mm. um, in 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 time with uh, everything else. You know, actually, the structure of, of of a score, you know, isn't based on the way pop songs are done. You know, pop songs have verses and choruses, and mm -hmm. they're very structured. They tend to be in eight and sixteen bar 
pieces. And it, there's something very satisfying about a song that has that that has symmetry. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a pop song, a rap song, a country song, they all have really, in many cases, the genres are based on the structure and the form. Right, just like a screenplay. Entirely on the dialogue, in a way. It's, it's literary structure. It is, as the story unfolds, the music adheres to it. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes loosely, sometimes very closely. So, I mean, you have composers, old school composers, especially John Williams being an example. Or if you think back to, you know, classic cartoons or every little gesture has mm-hmm. a note and a flip and a, and a gesture. Um, the more the music connects with the visuals, the more engaging it is. Um, modern film music does much less of that. Hmm. Um, that in fact, the word for it is cartooning. Cartooning, um, but, yeah. But modern film music, TV music, is has gotten a little less reactive and is a little more kind of ambient and just sort of does its thing and just hits the, the mood and then maybe makes a flips on on bigger transitions. Mm. Well, it's interesting, and this is a not quite a score, but uh, musical related, like thinking of songs sounding, they sound structured to mm-hmm. your ear until then you hear them outside of, of the piece. For some reason, I'm thinking specifically of Frozen and um, Let It Go sounds, when you're watching the film, it sounds like a structured song. Have you ever tried to do that song at karaoke? It is ridiculous. It just meanders all over the damn place. And it's like, this song isn't structured at all. It's like, it, it needs to be in the film to work. It doesn't work outside of the film. It's like a, it's like an eight minute song. And it kind of just, and it's like, you, we only remember the chorus because it was super hooky. But the rest of the song, you know, it's like, it fits the film, not. Yeah. And generally speaking, film musicals, especially which are mostly animated. I mean, La La Land aside, you know, there aren't a lot of live action musicals these days. Yeah, not anymore. Um, the, the, the whole genre of animated musicals is based on Broadway. Right. And, and, and you know, there really is something quite unique about songs for musicals because unlike pop songs and unlike scores, you you've you've actually kind of hit on a on a third, you know, spoke, and you know if you think about any musical, whether it's West Side Story or Frozen, generally speaking, the songs are actually in their heads. They're not really singing to right. each other. Right. They're singing. You to don't want to look like an idiot. It's singing. The singing represents uh, thoughts and feelings. Subconscious thoughts. Yeah. Unless yeah. it's like wall to wall, you know, Hamilton is more like an opera. There's very little or no spoken uh, mm-hmm. dialogue in that. So it, it kind of fits more in the, in the category of opera. But with musicals, basically plot, 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 dialogue, 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 and then stop, sing about, about something more metaphysical and psychological. But it has to move the story forward. Yes. It can't end where it began. So the audience will learn something. Typically, they'll learn, you know, what that character wants or intends. It it plants intention and mm-hmm. desire, and and those are two of the most important parts of 
of of character development you know is what is you know what does the character want what is yep. the character what do they do uh, to get trying it trying to do yeah. so um in musicals and the reason a song like you know let it go is a tad convoluted is other than perhaps some self-indulgence is is that a, is that in in that in that tradition of musicals the songs have a really specific role not only in terms of well taking a, a break from the, the dialogue but also but mo moving the plot forward without moving the plot forward mm. nothing happens during the song you know nobody dies in the middle of, of the song <laughs> Uh, makes it hard to, you know, do the Keep second singing. half of the song, but but there is something very unusual and and kind of interesting about interesting. the way about the way those songs uh, work. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But actually, that took me a little off track. What I wanted to talk more about the scoring thing was, I was lucky enough to work with you um, on my you short, did, didn't we? Yes, and I was really impressed at that, like that you were able to take you know, my, oh, wait, I love the song that I got, I got attached to, what's, is there a word, there's a word for that, isn't there? They're like when someone gets attached to the temp track. Yes, it's called temp love or demo temp love. love. Right, right, so I got super attached to the temp track, which we were like, no, no, can't do, can't, you can't have that. And I recall that I gave you the, um, that I thought it should sound sort of like Claire de Lune and sort of like this one national song that I'd gotten attached to. And you somehow got this incredible ethereal score that I can hear both of those influences in it, but it's like, it's a whole own thing. Oh, thanks. Few things generate more consternation in my world than temp scores. It is, you, you, you'll find a lot of composers who hate them. I would some imagine. like them. Some who actually have it in their contract to never be played. A, uh, a note of temp. Wow. Um, I know one Academy Award winning composer who has in his contract, you will not play me the temp score. You will not expect me to take from your temp score. And I know another one who simply said, no matter what you say, no matter what temp you have in there, you will get an original score by me and you can give me notes. You just can't tell me to make it more like the temp. Right. And it's in writing. It's actually in a legal Wow. Document, just kind of weird. My feeling is this. With very few exceptions, directors are, thankfully, not musicians. Actually, what, what's wonderful is that directors, the, the majority of directors, are usually well-schooled in all of the crafts of filmmaking. Directors understand acting, they understand blocking, they understand lighting, they understand cinematography, they understand color grading, they understand VFX, uh, they understand every part of, of the, the physical making of, of a movie, except for music. Mm. As such, that means that they're no longer, you know, you know, the benevolent leader, as you would say. I've had many directors say to me right out of the, Right, right off the bat, I'm really sorry, I don't know any music terminology. And the first thing I think is, thank God. Yes. Nothing worse than a director who says, you know, gee, I think there's too many minor chords, you know, and it's like, I, I don't wanna hear about that. You know, you just tell me what you want it to feel like 
what you're trying to get the what what the what the goal what's the purpose of the music is it to throw us off until she picks up the gun is it to make us worry that she might pick up the gun because she's thinking about picking up the gun you know every piece of music yeah. in theory has a purpose and usually a single purpose so working with directors who are not themselves musicians and who do not speak this whatever language it is uh, it's not Italian um, the best way they can describe what they're looking for if they don't have a musical vocabulary is the tap music. Right. I don't know why I like this piece, but I really do. It makes or me feel go, this. This piece, really, this piece, I've had many directors say, you know, I don't think the temp works here or here, but I think it works really well in this one scene and you should pay attention to that. And I'll say, well, what is it about that piece that you, that really you know, convinces you that it's that it's worthwhile. And they'll say, the tempo. So I'll write a completely original piece, but in that tempo. They may have already cut picture to, to the that. tempo, yeah. So if I stick to the tempo, that's the one part in which then I, my music will lay into their edits um, perfectly. I think we, I recall you asking me the similar thing, why I liked the the national song that I was inspired by. And it was I don't recall what I said, but it was the it was definitely about the emotion, uh, the wistfulness, I guess, and somehow you captured all of that in the in the actual composition. Oh, that's cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I thought so. <laughs> you got one. <laughs> Next, it's the big bucks. Yeah, I didn't well, get fired. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best, most productive things I can do as a composer when I first meet the director is to ask them very simply, describe the movie in two minutes. And that description will highlight only what's important to that person. Yes. And that is gold. To simply sit and listen for two minutes can save so much time. But I also, I'm always interested in what directors are listening to. And I'll ask them, I'll go, so what do you listen to for fun? What do you listen to when you're relaxing? You know, who are some of your favorite bands? Who are some of your favorite artists? Who are some of your favorite film composers? And absolutely that, that plays a role because my job isn't necessarily to convince somebody that, you know, this, this score should be done on ukuleles. It's to really, you know, unless I can convince them, you know, by writing something and going, look, you know, I, I have a surprise for you. I've scored the ukuleles sound amazing with ukuleles, and doesn't it work? You know, sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's you know, why are you trying to ruin my movie? <laughs> but some directors are really open to experimentation. Some are not. Well, I think I I wanted to do cello for Washed Away, my film, because I love cello and I just love that it's human voice. But then when we got into it, I think you came up with the Claire de Lune and the piano aspect of it. And it's the piano that makes it work really well. So like even just knowing, oh, the right instrument, let me hear your emotion and I'm going to give you the right instrument that like, I wouldn't have come up with that. You know, I suppose to me, different instruments and different sounds carry a certain emotional connotation. I mean, cello is a very popular if not the most popular instrument in film music really um yeah probably it's not ukulele 
Not anymore, thank God. Dang. It was for a little while. Well, for a while, um, you couldn't avoid it, mostly because of Apple. Ah. When, Apple when Apple, you know, started putting in these jaunty little uh, ukulele and hand clap pieces into their yes. commercials, it there was such an explosion of hand claps and ukuleles. It's Mumford and Sons and Zo Mumford and Sons and Zoe Deschanel everywhere all the time. Yeah, uh, and uh, no, you know, Apple has been Apple is a very influential hmm. part of advertising. The music that they put in their commercials and in their, you know, sure. introduction videos that they put on their website uh, get incredible. Oh, I'm sure uh, that's a that's a, a golden songs. apple for any composer yeah. or band. Yeah, a lot of it's chosen by this one guy down here in LA. This one huh. clever guy. You know, picking instruments is kind of important because different instruments, maybe because of their history, carry with them certain things. Because you were talking about when you listen to a piece of music, it conjures memories. Mm. So you put a ukulele and hand claps into a score, what do you what goes on in your mind is yeah, Mumford, you know, Mumford. Yeah. And, and now forever will iPhone 8 or something and that can work for you and that can work against you you know if you use a very distinctive instrument people will will connect to it because of how they've heard it before yes. unless you use it in a very novel way you can't ever so, use a penny whistle again without us waiting for the boat to hit the iceberg something like, like that that's a very good example choosing a piano which is maybe you know the most versatile instrument we have in western music Emotionally, not, mm. not sonically, it only makes one sound. Yes. Even even a solo piano is very is capable of conjuring up so much memories. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the cornerstone of classical music, cornerstone of jazz, uh, early rock. It it comes up in all kinds of of places. Two parts of the world where the cultures don't listen to the piano. The piano holds no meaning to them whatsoever. Oh, interesting. If, if you go, um, a musicologist who had gone to Africa kind of went with the idea of, is music inherently emotional? And so what he did, he did is he played Beethoven for uh, tribal people who had no exposure to having ever heard Western music. And it carried nothing to them. Wow. So the music that we put into movies is very much based on the Western paradigm of what is music. Wow. That feels really strangely, aggressively dominating over the rest of the world. <laughs> but I guess we got to know our audience as filmmakers. You know, the internet has made it such that Western music is now everywhere. It's, yeah. You know, well, so making the transition to video games, because you work on a lot of video games. I've been working on video games. How like I'm thinking of a particular thing that that I would say I was going to say we worked on, but that's we didn't work on it. I was there filming you. You have to create song, not songs. You have to create pieces that interlock because you don't know what the player is going to do. And like right. go over here and then that music. <clears throat> but it can't it has to feel not yes. jarring. How do you do that? Magic. Composer, composer magic, pixie dust? So obviously film and TV, they're linear. The audience has no control over how quickly they go through a piece. Same with um, 
dance. You know, if you watch a ballet or a modern dance, the, the choreographer has decided how long you will be watching it. Mm -hmm. With a painting, with visual art, with a painting or a sculpture, you can look at it for two seconds or you can look at it for two hours. So with games, there is still a very high, a high level of storytelling going on. Modern games do a lot of character development. They do, I mean, they're not just shooting guns at monsters, um, although eventually they're all shooting guns at monsters, but there's a lot going on. And you're right, if you're good at the game, you get through it faster than if you're not good at the game. So in writing music for uh, video games, you start the same way you would start a score for, for a movie, which is you create a theme, you create an, an emotion, you create a style. Is it gonna be orchestra? Is it gonna be guitars and drums? Is it gonna be synthesizers? Is it going to be dark? Is it gonna be exciting? Is it gonna be dangerous? You know, is it gonna have a melody? Is it gonna have choir? You know, all of these, you make all of these decisions and then you, you write some pieces and you write some tunes and you write some themes. And, you know, like in film, you might have a, a theme for the villain and a theme for the mm. hero. Uh, or you might have a chase theme and a tension theme and a, you know, explore the world theme. Once you've kind of come up with these more traditional musical things, these sketches, then there's a, there's a, a layer in between those and the game. And that layer is that you take the music and you deconstruct it and you deconstruct it in two uh, directions, sort of an X and, and x-axis and y mm. so on the x-axis you take you can take a three minute piece of music and you can cut it into smaller bits and the way you've written it is you may write it from the least exciting to the most exciting which isn't that unusual in music in general sure classical music does Builds. that yeah but then what you do is you make it such that if you cut it up into little segments that are a few seconds long usually, and, and by tempo, so it's in bars, not seconds. And you compose it in a way that any one little section could, if it needed to, loop back. So the, you have the A section, maybe it plays once, and the B section, then the C section, the player can't quite figure out how to unlock the door. So the C thing, which could be 10 seconds long, 15 seconds long, repeats, but it's seamless. You can't hear it. But once they unlock the door, it jumps to D. And then as they get down the hall, it goes to F. And if they go fast, it might jump to H. And so you, you do it in these little bite-sized pieces. But then if you think about it, any given piece of music typically has layers to it. There's percussion and strings and synthesizers yeah. and melody and rhythm and harmony. Well, in a game, you, you, you divide those up. As the game is being played, there's software inside the game console, whether it's your phone or, you know, a PS5, that can take layers in and out. So oh, wow. getting back to the idea of, of section C looping, well, that would even at 10 seconds, eventually you're going to, you know, go, oh my God, this is like- Yeah, this make is it stop. Torture. But- So then you're on the Y-axis. The clever software- out layers. There's this clever software. They call it middleware. And it it's in between the music that I write and- the, the player playing the game and is responding to the actual gameplay. Wow. So it can even be done semi-randomly where every third or fourth time, it'll leave out the 
the, the voices okay. or bring in an extra guitar. So modern, modern video games, the big ones have actually in some cases a phenomenal amount of technology. I'm, I'm describing it in fairly simple terms. There's quite a few other ways of making music highly interactive. We've come, so, we've come a long way since the Donkey Kong. We've come a long way oh, since Super Mario. And, like uh, I just, that's the only thing I know. Savvy. That sounds really exciting for, cause if you're the right personality type, like for me, I'd be like, that sounds daunting and terrifying, but for the right personality type is be like a kid in a candy store, like all the yeah, different well, things you, know, you get to as long do. As you don't mind having, you know, your music, Basically, like taking a deck of cards and throwing right, it right. in the air and going, oh, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever listened back or, or seen someone playing one of the games and gone, oh, okay, that's, I wrote that, but it's an, it put together in a way that I never. 100%. That's going to be so weird. Crazy. In addition to video games, of course, you are also a solo of recording artist of your own. From time stuff. to time when I can. From time to time. So, like, what, what lights you up as, a, as an artist? I've been scoring things for 20 plus years. And I've put out quite a lot of music on soundtrack albums, but they're all soundtracks. Mm -hmm. I re-edit them a little bit. They're different than they appear in, in the film, but just, just a little bit. I realized that everything I've ever written that anybody's heard was written to somebody else's specifications. Mm -hmm. And I decided that even though I've written some music that you know feels very personal to me, it was still at the behest of somebody else. Yeah. Before getting more involved in film music, I had done a little more on the artistic side, uh, working with Philip Glass for a while, and then touring with a kind of a, 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 a it's not exactly a rock band, but working with Brian Eno on, on a project. And so, you know, I mean, this is sort of where my head is at, that it's, I, I, there is an, a sort of an experimental side to me um, a more ambient side to me, something mm. that just, that the pace of it is very different than what I'm allowed to do as a film mm. composer. So I put out my first album about two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, just because I felt like I had things to say. So I put out an album called Projector, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Music and uh, where we I will find- We will link to it. Oh, okay. And, and as of recently, Bandcamp, where you can get a signed uh, vinyl. Ooh. I did a limited edition of 50 vinyl albums, and I still have a handful left. Do you have a turntable? It yes, helps. we do. It helps. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk. Um, with, um, with COVID and the quarantine and two television series that I was set to score getting bumped to later, mm. I had some more time. And... I had spent much of last year sketching a new album, but I'm finally finishing that. I know that when I saw you play live um, back before, what the, what was that? December, January, February would have been. Oh, that was in January, I think. Yeah, it would have been before the world ended. It was really interesting because I didn't know what to expect. You know, I've you because you've been this chameleon for all these other people. So it's like, what is Jeff's music? Just when it's yeah. just Jeff. You know, I, I sort of look at, at film scoring or all scoring as doing what character actors do. Mm -hmm. Good character actors convince you very quickly that they are funny or menacing. And 
um, and they, they, they have a knack for putting on personas. And the, mm -hmm. They get work because of their ability to put on a persona where other actors are basically hired to just be that actor. Yeah. You know, and you know, most lead actors are, are sort of a brand. Mm -hmm. you know? You're going to George Clooney your way through this. We want George Clooney to George Clooney the movie. Yes. And, and you know, that that's a pretty long list of lead actors who really stick to a, within a fairly narrow range. They may do some drama, they may do some comedy. Then you have character actors, you know, it's like you recognize them, I've seen them. In, it's that, I've seen them in a million movies. Yes, there. it's that guy. Yeah, and so really you, you call it chameleon-esque and I think of it as character acting. Yeah, that's been, that's been my entire career. So it is nice to step out of that. Yeah, it's gotta be satisfying to actually have your own you know, quite a few film composers will say, I don't have anything to say musically except in in service to the movie. So for you, it must be really satisfying to step out and use your it's, own voice. It's absolutely great. Did you grow up in a musical family? Were you no. like, you came, you, you came out of the blue? I had an older brother who had perfect pitch. Oh, wow. And, and was a, kind of a musical savant. And we had a little upright piano in the house, a little spinet piano, but I don't. And I, I did not excel in music. I did not grow up wanting to be a musician. Huh. Uh, I had other plans. It was really only in college that I started thinking, well, let me figure out what I can do here. Sort of I what knew college? what I enjoyed, but I didn't know what that would mean professionally or as a career, as a life. Mm. You know, and I, I did eventually figure out that, you know, music was exciting to me and making music was not, was, was actually the most difficult thing I can do. Huh. It is challenging to me and it is to this day. It doesn't just trip out of me. Um, you know, Elton John has often said that it takes less time for him to write his songs than the length of the song. Jesus. They just pop out. And, um, I'm I'm the opposite of that. I I it's very it's it's experimental, but it's also methodical. No, you know, I mean, my parents listened to music. Um, my father had a violin which he would take out of the closet once a year, play three notes, get frustrated, put it back for another year. So that doesn't. <laughs> so no, there wasn't any real. I mean, we wow. were just music. Was there a reaction when you said, this is what I'm doing for my life? Or was it like, oh, yeah, yes, there was very much a reaction and it was not not good. What? How did you uh, get around that? The way anybody does. Not like, listen. I don't care yeah. what you want, Dad. <laughs> You're not the but, boss of me. You know, look, uh, I grew up in a family where um, as as the son of of Eastern European immigrants uh, who, who had to flee, um, well, actually, they were unable to flee. They were in the concentration camps. Jesus. So there was a big emphasis on education, you know, mm -hmm. something solid. And, you know, my parents, like most parents, wanted something practical for me, you know, learn a craft, learn a trade, yeah. something, get hired. Be safe, be taken care of. And be of. safe. And, you know, yeah. that just wasn't for me. I think I had one job. When I was in my 20s, I worked for four years, but for a synthesis, a company that made musical instruments. And it was it was actually great. It was very helpful for me. And then that was the last time I ever had a quote unquote job. You know, what I do isn't for everybody. It involves, there's as much luck 
as anything, tenacity, self-confidence, failure, and more failure, and more failure, and disappointments, and second-guessing, watching other composers, you know, climb the ranks faster than you, and dealing with a wide range of personalities. I, I, I can easily say that the best and worst people I've ever met in my life come from entertainment. I think um, that's fair. Fortunately, they, they skew towards the best. You know, look, I've been, you know, verbally abused and mm. uh, emotionally abused. And, um, you know, I've built up a pretty thick skin. Uh, I built it up fairly quickly because I had a couple of good mentors who said, yeah, you know, don't take anything personally. Yeah. It's Which like, it, well, it's, you know? well, yeah, because it's, A, you're creating something from your heart and soul and putting it on the page. And B, the person's having the reaction very much from their emotional core that has nothing to do with you. It's their past yeah. and their memories and they're having that reaction. They could learn to communicate it in a way that's not mean, but. <laughs> well, if they, if, they, if there's time. But yeah. <laughs> when there's no time, then the, the tact goes out the window. Yeah. I, I developed this sort of mindset very early on, which is when I'm sitting here in my studio composing, I put my heart and soul into everything I do, like you said. And I write it. And then when it's ready to send, I save it and I send it. From the moment I finish it, it's not mine anymore. Mm. I traded it for money. Yes. And at that point, it belongs to the person who hired me. So it's mine in this room. But once it leaves this room, it belongs to somebody else. So if they say to me, yeah, I'm not feeling it. I, you know, I wanted something, you know, sad. And I, I just don't feel it's that sad. Okay, fine. Well, it's your music. Yeah. I'll fix it for you. I'll do a you want me thing. to fix it or do you want me to rewrite it? Oh, you want me to rewrite it? I will pour my soul into it again. Wow. But yeah. the minute it's out, it leaves this room. I, 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 I release my emotional attachment to the music itself. That sounds very healthy. It's de rigueur. I don't know how hmm. anybody could survive yeah. this business, whether you're a composer or a writer. If somebody says, that sucked, you don't take that to mean I suck. I've always sucked he just figured it out and I'm going to, you know, wear the, the, the badge of, you know, the, the, the Scarlet S. I was going to say the Scarlet S of suckitude for the rest of your life. That's, that's my compromise. I wow. feel it in here. Once it leaves, then I'm, I am game for whatever. Look, my first intuition is the most musical because it's what I thought of. Yeah. But you know what? I can think of only a tiny number of, there's only a tiny number of times where when a director said, oh, I need you to make some changes, that it didn't get better and that I agree. I rarely disagree with notes. First of all, a note is I need it to be more tense. It's not, why did you modulate to A flat minor? <laughs> it's, I, I want more tension. So I can do that. I'm just... This, this music is, is distracting me from the dialogue. And that's a really important line. And she whispers it. Yeah. Okay. You know, whether it's a tiny little tweak, a major pull out the second half and do something else, or a, you know, page one rewrite, as you would say, 
you know, measure one for us. Yes. It rarely has made the, the, the score worse. And almost always, I'm always up against, there's, it, there's always a clock ticking. There's never yes. not a clock ticking. So my job isn't about how good I write. It's about how good I can write and be done in the next 90 minutes or 30 minutes. Yeah. Or four minutes of music written by five o'clock today, whatever it is. Right. So when a, when a director says, oh, you know what? That's not working for me. I get, I get a little more time, which means a little time to process, to think, to reflect and go, you know what? Maybe it is a little too busy. Hmm. You know, maybe, maybe it would be better if we didn't have the high violins here and just let it be this one thing, you know? What, looking at your journey now, what would you wish someone had told you at, when you were 13? Not thinking he was going to go into music. What do you wish you'd known? That's a good question. Probably just to follow your curiosities every day. Do something that involves your curiosity as often as possible. If you're interested in chemistry, go buy a chemistry set or go read a book or whatever it is. Follow your curiosity all the time. Don't wait for it to come to you because it won't. And it won't be in school unless your curiosity is how can I become a school teacher? <laughs> um, no, that's a really good point. That's the advice to my teenage self. You know, I, I did finally start doing that, but not till my 20s. And, That's still uh, really early compared to a lot of people. You know, I suppose, but, um, you know, I did have some, I did have curiosities when I was growing up. Things that made noises. I like short-circuiting, you know, old radios that were broken and getting them to screech. And I found that, I found that wonderful feedback and everything is just cool. Playing my dad's records at half speed is like, you know, what does this sound like? Let me see. Out. So I think I had this fascination with sound and music. I didn't have, I, I'm not gifted. You know, I wasn't a prodigy. I was the opposite of a prodigy. Hmm. And I'm a late bloomer in many ways. And yeah, um, I get that. Me too. I have always been insatiably curious about things. Hmm. I still am. You know, if I go meet a mechanic who bends this piece of metal, I'll ask, I want to know, you know, do you have to heat it up? I mean, yeah. Everything about everything kind of is interesting to me. And if I hadn't had that, I think I wouldn't have found any path. The thing about music, well, the thing about art, and I don't think it matters what, is, is that art is so vast. You hear this all the time, even Picasso and artists who, you know, had long careers will, will say that they just scratched the surface, that there was more undone than done, even late in life. And that's, you know, and music is so vast and so mysterious that um, I, I, I will never achieve anything even remotely resembling getting to that point of it getting stale, you know, especially now that we have Netflix. <laughs> There's three hours a day gone. True. That's great. I mean, if there was Netflix... Uh, a few hundred years ago, how many um, plays would, you know, how many yeah. plays and, and sonnets would Shakespeare have written? None. Three? Thou must not. He would have been too Bill. busy pitching pilots. That's true. He was a commercial well, guy. He was a commercialized writer, so. 
he would have been all about like what other you know ancient myths and fables can I just recycle uh in familiar themes and that's that's all we're still doing so he would have fit right in Hamlet has a three season arc ends with a cliffhanger you know that kind of thing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have a spinoff set in Miami Beach for some reason I would I can never I can't imagine look I've been doing it for half my life you know nearly uh I can't see a time where I've sort of like nailed it that's that's good staying humble and staying curious well I I never said humble but um but like to think I haven't nailed it like you've never sat by me like I just wrote the best thing that's ever been written I'm done no I consider everything I've ever done to just be good failures oh my god well Jeff I feel like we've covered a lot of ground tonight have we I mean, you answered so all of my questions that I had asked, oh. that I had to ask. Wow. The only thing I didn't get to ask you, which is maybe irrelevant, but you were saying you're working on a new, um, in the what's next category, you said you were working on a, a Netflix project for something mm-hmm. that's currently shooting in Scotland. But if it's currently shooting and they don't have something for you to work from, how are you composing for something that hasn't been... Oh, I, I read the screenplay and I'm writing themes based on the characters excellent tell us what that is when it's you about can. an author Ooh, movies about writers the most cinematic possible thing to do mm-hmm. but um, you're it. shooting it now i'll finish it i'll get started at the end of the year and then deliver it at the beginning of next year the director is yeah. an old friend of mine i've done two movies with her both horror films and now we're doing a romantic comedy and frankly i don't even know how she's going to do it but she feels quite good about it and somehow convinced Netflix that I wasn't a horrible idea, but I would have, I wouldn't have hired me. <laughs> well, um, I look forward to working with you again. I hope I get a chance to work with you again on, on so a future, a future film of mine. Thank you for taking the time out of your evening to talk oh, with us. Oh, my today. pleasure. Next time on Hearthside Salons, filmmaker Sarah Nesson knows something about succeeding in a man's world. Her recent documentary, Women Who Score, covers 20 female composers in Changing Hollywood. Her documentary, Poster Girl, about the first female gunner in the Iraq War, garnered her Oscar and Emmy nominations. Her quest to bring the story to the screen as a narrative feature continues to be a roller coaster. We'll talk about representation and what it means to be a woman who persists. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept-to-pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from PageCraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.